Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Olibest. As a white woman who was born and raised in the United States, I have learned so much during the past few months as I've studied patriarchy all over the world. And one of the most valuable new things that I've encountered through all of these books and conversations is the concept of Orientalism. We heard a lot about Orientalist tropes during our series on the Muslim world, but Orientalism is a Western attitude toward women in the quote-unquote East that affects a huge geographical region from Morocco to Japan. And one Orientalist trope that is quite common is the idea of the quiet and submissive woman who is a passive victim of patriarchy. So this week's book was perhaps one of the most striking challenges to Orientalist thinking that I have read so far. The book is called Scream from the Shadows, the Women's Liberation Movement in Japan by Dr. Setsu Shigematsu. And from the very first page, I felt surprised and even sometimes shocked. The book describes some of the most radical feminist activism that I have ever read about, and it was going on in the 1970s at the same time as the women's liberation movement in the United States, but I had never heard of it. This was so new to me, and it stopped me in my tracks and made me examine why I felt so surprised at these Japanese women's radicalism. And this was a process that I was really, really grateful for. So not only did I learn a lot of content, it really helped me develop as a feminist. And I am really, really grateful to have read this book and highly recommend it to listeners. I found it fascinating, and I am so excited to have Dr. Setsu Shigematsu here today to discuss her book. Welcome, Setsu. Thank you so much, Amy, for that wonderful introduction. I'm thrilled to be here, and I'm thrilled to be on this podcast discussing with you about the history of radical feminism in Japan and how it intersects with Orientalism and really is talking back, if not screaming back, to these long histories of Orientalism and patriarchy. Yeah, wonderful. Well, I can't wait to dig into all of this stuff, which again, <laughs> was totally new to me and I found just so intriguing. First, we'll, we'll do just a little professional introduction of you and then I'll have you introduce yourself more personally. Dr. Setsu Shigematsu is a mother of two children and an associate professor of media and cultural studies at UC Riverside. Her intellectual and scholarly concerns include the relationship of U.S. and Japanese imperialism, gendered state violence, transnational liberation movements, comparative feminist theory, and cultural studies. She is the author of Scream from the Shadows, the Women's Liberation Movement in Japan, and the director of Revisions of Abolition, 2011 and 2021, a documentary film about the prison industrial complex and the prison abolition movement. She is also co-editor of Militarized Currents Toward a Decolonized Future in Asia and the Pacific. So Setsu, I'm really intrigued by all of these titles and want to look into all of the work you do. I will say, again, a plug for this book, and I mentioned this before we started the conversation, but I always so appreciate a book that tackles really complex ideas, but in clear language that's accessible. And even though I spend all day, every day in academic texts, it still is like so refreshing when I read a book that is easy to understand and has vivid stories. So I just want to congratulate you on such a fantastic book and then, and your other projects that just sound amazing as well. So 
Thank you so much for well, saying that, Amy. I also really appreciate those feminist writers out there like Sarah Ahmed, who I was just discussing in a senior seminar yesterday. She doesn't purposely try to use right jargony, obtuse language just to make herself look smart. And I really feel like we need to, in academia, kind of get over this the elitist use of, you know, unnecessary jargon when we want to, if we really do want to change the world, then we do need to ha- know how to, right, communicate in various registers and not be unnecessarily complex if if the topic doesn't require it. So thank you for saying that. Just to further situate myself, I was born in Tokyo, Japan, but before I turned one, my family moved to London, England. And so I grew up in Canada, England, and then moved to the United States for graduate school. But while I was in graduate school, I decided to do my work on the history and philosophy of the radical feminist movement, very much in part because as someone of Japanese heritage, I definitely felt caged by the stereotypes of the right the orientalist trope of the asian woman being submissive and not only that i shared even with my students recently that a white guy had said to me based on the movies that he'd seen he thought that all asian women were prostitutes you know because of their representation oh, wow. in hollywood media yes so kind of thinking about that level of sexualized, racialized, gendered like representation that was so common right through Hollywood and Western media. Not only are we working against these kind of centuries of Orientalist literature and representation, but, you know, that trope of that or the stereotype of the geisha as being, you know, so prominent as well in people's imaginations of what Japanese society is like. I, you know, was growing up in, you know, a predominantly white society. And while my mother was you know, a highly educated woman, she would she graduated from Berkeley in 1960. She would tell me things like, yes, in Japanese society, women were required to walk three steps behind the man. And all of these kinds of understandings of how Japanese patriarchy were also constraining her life and her grandmother's life. I grew up with these stories. So when I had the opportunity to start reading about radical Japanese feminism, I was immediately hooked and decided this needed to be my area of research because not only did I want to know what these radical Japanese feminists were saying and doing, but I was hungry to learn about the history of revolutionary women in Japan. Fabulous. Well, let's dive right in to that topic And maybe how we can start is for you to set the stage a little bit and talk about some of the historical context of what came before this book. This book highlights a specific movement in Japan in the 1970s. But if you could give us kind of a bird's eye view of the systemic patriarchy that existed at the time, then maybe we can use that as a jumping off point. Sure. So... I'm sure as the listeners know, Japan and the United States were in what we I what what was called World War II, but I like to refer to it as an inter-imperialist conflict. These were late imperial powers clashing with each other about territorial domination in Asia and across Asia. And after the 
defeat of Japan in 1945, the United States was occupying Japan until 1952. And they did create this, you know, new constitution, which was, you know, considered very progressive at the time. But because they were, you know, offering these ideals of democracy and equality in the new education system in the post-war, there was such a deep contradiction between what the post-war generations were learning about and their lived reality. And so in 1960, there was a huge protest across the nation to try to end the military alliance between the United States and Japan that was known as the Japan, the Security Treaty. And despite the fact that millions of Japanese were in the streets protesting against the Japanese government, there was definitely a kind of still authoritarian practice. In the time of these protests, there were many women who became involved in student activism. There were women who became involved in communist and Marxist and revolutionary groups. And this kind of activism continued and was quite robust across college campuses. And so leading into the next renewal of the treaty in 1970, as there was radicalism happening all around the world, you know, in the United States, in Europe, the anti-Vietnam War movement was catalyzing so much anti-war activism as well. In Japan, many students also became involved in anti-Vietnam War activism. They became involved in various kinds of new left movements. And through women's experience in these political spaces, they also began to criticize the sexism that they were experiencing from the leftist men, from the activist men. And it was the sexism that they decided that they no longer wanted to put up with that led them to create the separatist radical feminist movements that became the beginning of Umanlib, which is a kind of Japanese alliteration of woman lib. So they called themselves Woman Lib, and the Japanese kind of pronunciation of it is Bu, but this is the name that they decided to raise as their new banner of this radical women's liberation movement that was very much tackling concepts like women's sexual liberation and sexuality in new forms that had never yet transpired in Japanese society in the kind of language and militancy and the kind of rejection of Japanese patriarchy. It had hitherto not been seen even in various socialist, communist, and Marxist formations among women. I can recognize patterns that were happening in many places all over the world at that time. And that's that's so interesting to hear about how it was happening in Japan. One concept that came up in a book that I read prior that we talked about in the podcast earlier on patriarchy in East Asia was the concept of, quote, good wives and wise mothers. Could you talk about that just a little bit? Absolutely. So there was a state-propagated concept of the ideal, of ideal womanhood. And it, you know was in this slogan, good wives, wise mothers, it encapsulated this kind of prescription of heteronormativity for women to become, you know, a good wife to a man and then a wise mother of his children. And so this concept in Japanese was called ryosai kembo, but it was very much a kind of norming cage in which, you know, women were required to you know, be married and then reproduce children for their husbands, for the nation. And then all of this concept of 
the nuclear family patriarchy would then be recorded in this thing called the you know the this family registry system in which you would have to designate one head of household and in about 98% of cases that one head of household would be you know the man hence the patriarchy and so there was definitely a very clear system in which a kind of state enforced family system is very much at the core of Japanese society and that very much took on this patriarchal form and it was a patrilineal Japan had pre-modern Japan also had a longer history of patrilineal property transfer so in this context of good wives wise mothers patriarchal husband-led families that comprise the kind of patriarchal state, right? So it, it was in this context that the women's lib movement in Japan rose up because women were being kind of trained in other civil issues. And they're saying we're rejecting sexism across the board. Am I understanding this right as I'm summarizing it? The women who were rejecting the sexism were women who were already politically active for the mm -hmm. most part, even though and, and many of them were single, but not all of them were single. Okay. So what would you say their main objectives were? If there's like bullet points, here are the, the patriarchal systems that we want to dismantle in Japan. So to summarize kind of their key concepts, definitely one of their key concepts was the liberation of sex. It was the liberation of Eros. It was also, they also launched this major critique of the family marriage system. And, and I'm putting those two things together because obviously the, the, the family was supposed to be properly reproduced within the heteropatriarchal marriage system. And so along with that was linked, you know, we, as we understand the kind of control of women's sexuality to be at the core of, right, the patriarchal family marriage institution. And so they were rebelling against this institution because the way in which, you know, marriage laws historically and social norms additionally were reproduced was that, you know, women were to be monogamous and men had the right to, you know, do whatever they could afford to do sexually. And there was a long tradition of this kind of, you know, what we would refer to as red light district, but it, there was a whole name for it and a concept in Japanese called Mizushowai, the, the water industry. And this double standard of, you know, one wife, one man marriage system, even though there is this concept of monogamy in Japan, these radical feminists were saying that, oh, but monogamy is only enforced for men. And so hence, at the core of their critique of the marriage family system was a critique of kind of one way double standard monogamy as well. And hence, this concept of the liberation of sex was very much core to their cry for how women needed to be liberated. So was birth control widely available at the time? Because that's, I mean, that's the risk for women that men don't necessarily take on, right? That women are stuck with the pregnancy and men can just walk away. So did the, did birth control play a part in that? So I'm glad you brought up the question of birth control because that is one of the, I think, most significant distinctions between how the women's lib feminists 
approach the right to use the pill compared to that of what was happening in the U.S. feminist scene. Because actually many of the activists who, and I would say the majority of the radical feminist activists in the Umandi movement were not necessarily pro-pill and were actually wary of the pill because they feared that because the government ultimately controlled the pharmaceutical, you know, corporate, you know, basically distribution of the pill, at, they worried that it was would be another way in which the state would control women's sexuality. So they were not involved um, for the most part, except for one particular very well-known radical feminist sect called Chu Piden, and they actually the P in that actually refers to the pill, free the pill. But and this this group was very much covered in the media because they did a lot of high visibility protests. They would don pink helmets and they got a lot of media attention. And this was the one group that was trying to demand for greater access to the pill. And they were calling out things like, you know, they would go to men's companies and and do direct action protests against men who were having affairs. But this was just one of the sects in the entire movement. And many of the other women activists were very critical of this sect because they said, we actually don't care that much about using the pill. And we don't care if men are necessarily having affairs in marriage because we disagree with the marriage system. So they were having a kind of larger systemic critique of the way in which the state was trying to control women's reproduction, even by regulating access to the pill. So they were very wary of focusing too much on the pill or focusing on something like men who were having affairs because they did launch a larger critique of marriage and monogamy. One of the pictures, like the, one of the photographs that I remember most from the book was a photograph of like a commune with mothers and children, right? Where they raised their children communally. So that was one of the adaptations, I guess, that they employed in rejecting patriarchal monogamous marriage is just like, if we get pregnant, we'll raise our kids together. Is is that right? That was such an interesting part to me. Yes, yes. And so part of their, I think, ex- very ex- their various experiments in rejecting patriarchy was to form these communes, which, as you described, were women and their babies, and they would be raising them as opposed to sticking to the nuclear heteronormative, you know, patriarchal model. And so these communes were popping up in different cities in different parts of Japan. And that is, I think, one of the radical ways in which women were rejecting the patriarchal model. And then other women who were partnered with men would oftentimes just refused to comply with the normative registration procedures of, you know, registering themselves as part of a man's like household registry and whatnot. So there were various kinds of resistance, but that was definitely, I think, a really excellent example of how they were all about trying to live and embody their politics. Mm-hmm. Okay. The next question I wanted to ask you was about Tanaka Mitsu. And you write that you can't even talk about the movement without talking about Tanaka Mitsu. So can you tell us who she was? Yes. So Tanaka Mitsu was, we might understand her as one of the, the, the charismatic figures of the movement who was self educated and didn't then necessarily bring the same kind of discourse as many of the other activists were bringing to the space. And she 
was also someone who had, you know, a, a way with words and was a very talented, I think, speaker and writer and definitely someone who thinks and moves way outside of the box. And so she wrote what were and are remembered as probably the most famous or well-known manifestos of the movement. And one of them was called Liberation from the Toilet, if, if we were to just give it a kind of Western translation. And she wrote other important manifestos like The Liberation of Eros. And she oftentimes became the spokesperson who talked to the media. And so she, her name was definitely out there, even though there was no formal designated leader of the movement. But she definitely had very unusual ways of articulating a kind of feminism in that moment. One other way to characterize Tadakamitsu, which other people would use to describe her, is a reporter from this newspaper called Asahi Shimbun said she was kind of medium. And there's a concept of like, you know, the kind of shaman medium of the movement. And that word in Japanese is miko. So I think that other people also kind of understood her to be the kind of the the spirit, kind of the person who articulated the spirit of the movement in a public facing way. And I think that that's a helpful way to think about her role in the movement, because we know that oftentimes movements have de facto leaders, even though they don't have that necessarily that formalized title or structure. So the next question I have for you is about the women's lib stance on violence. And these were some of the passages that were the most surprising to me. I've said before on the podcast many times that, you know, technically the definition of radical feminism, radical just means from the root, right? So it just means you are not trying to reform things on the surface. We're trying to dig at the roots and uproot the system and then plant something completely new. But when people hear radical feminism, they sometimes think of violence. And so I really enjoyed these sections and learned so much from these sections where these feminists were not only radical in the true definition of the sense in their uprooting things, but they are really trying to figure out whether they want to use violence or not. And so some of the kind of the subtopics and under this topic of violence were these feminist stance on abortion and then a very evocatively titled section called Mothers Who Kill Their Children. And then you write how some of these feminists were practicing martial arts training. And there was this concept of, quote, the choice of whether or not to strike. So whether or not to use violence. So I know that's a lot to throw at you, but maybe if you could just choose some of those topics to talk about. Definitely. Thank you for that question, because this is one of my longstanding obsessions is women's relationship with violence. And to think about how Umanib is very different from what we, we commonly understand to be radical feminism in the U.S. context. Interestingly enough, speaking of Tanaka Mitsu, she had a very unusual approach to abortion insofar as Tanaka Mitsu actually admitted that abortion was violence. was, And in that sense, she, the discourse of Uma Nib and Tanaka's discourse as well did not emphasize women's right to abortion. And I understand that in the moment that we're currently in, this is a really you know difficult 
way to think about how the current abortion wars are right playing out in the U.S. But Tanaka Mitsu did speak about women actually aborting their children as a type of violence towards that you know potential new life. But this was uh, also consistent with her overall very unusual feminist approach to violence because. Tanaka Mitsu described this concept of a trans-historical grudge that women carry in their wombs due to all of the op- sexist oppression women have experienced over the years. And she actually encouraged women to acknowledge this kind of trans-historical grudge that they carry in their wombs as a force for revolutionary change that women could tap into. And the way in which she then she had linked this concept of this kind of grudge that, you know, women actually carried, you know, in their wombs was the example of the very tragic way in which there was at the time of the movement, a kind of media coverage of this new phenomena of women who were living in urban centers who couldn't handle motherhood on their own. And because they were so isolated from their extended families and isolated in these new kind of urban apartment buildings, there were a spate of cases where women were leaving their children in, you know, lockers in train stations and putting them even in like trash cans. And so the media was, you know, doing the sensational coverage of this new new phenomena of what's called in Japanese kogoroshi onna, women, women who kill their children. This was, to me, one of the fascinating campaigns that these radical feminists engaged in by trying to produce a discourse around these women who were doing violence towards their children by trying to say that this is symptomatic of the society at large, as opposed to just falling into the criminalizing discourse of these are terrible, sick, crazy women. You know, we need to condemn them. So what I loved about this attempt to intervene on this phenomena of women killing their children was their way in which they said that we need to understand the the what you were talking about, the kind of what are the root causes of this happening? And in that sense, to me, it was a proto-abolitionist feminist response, because rather than going to the default oh, criminalization of individuals, they really wanted to understand, okay, what were the conditions for each of these women? And they began to study the conditions that, you know, these women were experiencing that led them to, you know, harm their own children. And then they would even, some of the activists would even go visit them in jail to see and to try to talk to these women of what, through the conversations, would they would learn about why they became, you know, that desperate to harm their own children, which Tanaka still understood to be kind of almost against the nature of, you know, what mothering was about. Yeah, it's such an interesting and complicated discussion. And her stance, again, was kind of like, I guess, maybe not intuitive for me, but the deeper I got into it, the more I understood it. And it was so interesting. I'm glad you brought that up because I'd actually forgotten about that part with the the grudge that the womb carries. I know that a book and a concept that is in a lot of my conversations with friends lately is that book, The Body Keeps the Score, Mm -hmm. right? Like that we have trauma in our bodies and that intergenerational trauma that gets passed down like in our DNA from prior generations of violence. That's such an 
important and interesting concept that they were already talking about in the 70s, long before that was in kind of the general discourse, at least to my knowledge. So Right, right. And I like that book too. So thanks yeah. for mentioning it. Mm -hmm. So the next question I wanted to ask is about the new left. And that might be, even that, that phrase might be new to listeners. So can you tell us what's the new left? And you, you referred to it a little bit earlier in the episode where you say that there was a lot of sexism among the men who were doing other kinds of activism. But if you can just talk about that a little bit more and specifically Zen Kyoto. Thank you. Sure. So the new left is a term that is used both in Japan as well as the United States. In the Japanese context, it refers specifically to these Marxist groups that emerged in the 19, throughout really the 1950s, that had broken off from the formal organization of the Communist Party and the Socialist Party. The Communist Party and the Socialist Party were both very top-down authoritative leftist political parties, and they wanted to maintain control over the student activists. But because the student activists wanted to reject their kind of authoritarian top-down approach, they broke away from them deliberately among the students, among the student movements. And there was this major organization called Bunde, which was a you know formation of various communist, Marxist, leftist, socialist students who rejected, who formally rejected the Communist Party. And then the new left basically became a bunch of various sects of, of Marxist, Leninist, socialist, you know, student activists primarily, although students who had graduated, students who would quit being students and become professional organizers, they were parts of these various new left sects. And some of the women activists who started Umanib had experiences in these new left sex. I do have to throw in here too, I did some research on the iteration that happened in the United States of sexism within the new left for my master's thesis, actually. And so it was so interesting to see how these things were going on in parallel at the same time. So can you talk a little bit about Zen Kyoto? Yes, I just realized that I forgot to answer that part of the, the that part of the question. So Zen Kyoto was a formation of student student or it was a student organization that crossed campuses and these leftist students rejected the new left. So there were like these layers whereby, okay, the new left is rejecting the Communist Party and the Socialist Party. And then the Zen Kyoto activists were, for the most part, rejecting the dogma that became characteristic of the new left sects. Because even among the new left sects, some of them became very hierarchical and very authoritarian and top heavy or top, you know, top down. And almost like almost some even became quite even militaristic in their organizing style, especially as the militancy increased. And the Zen Kyoto activists were the ones who were saying, we do not want to follow anyone's dogma. And Zen Kyoto was a much more looser network of students across multiple campuses that were taking over campuses, occupying campuses, so much so that by 1968, there were student occupations across over 100 campuses in Japan. Speaking of student movements, one of the sections that I thought was interesting too 
were was a section on women's theory and some of these intellectual strains that were coming out of the movement. You give some really interesting examples of radical feminism, including rejecting masculine structures of work ethic and science and linear thinking and kind of like examining things that we take for granted as we go through school and we go through life the way it's structured. And they were kind of rethinking everything at the time, right? Yes, absolutely. And thank you for bringing up the concept of like women's theory. As you know, someone who's been in the academy for a few decades now, I think that it's another way to describe feminist philosophy. And one of the key and I think in, enduring concepts that that this thinker Tokoro Mitsuko critiqued, and she was actually part of the pre-Zen Kyoto movement. She was a, a graduate student in the sciences at the University of Tokyo, and she launched this critique of the logic of productivity as well as part of this kind of notion of women's theory. And by rejecting this kind of capitalist form of productivity, which we can now understand as also critiquing things like ableism and the way in which the logic of productivity can infect not only workspaces and, you know, corporate kinds of uh, labor conditions, but actually can also infect the way we, we go about our our activism. So I think that her critique of the logic of productivity and the ideas of Western science and Western rationality was also important in in terms of core philosophical rejections of the way in which we think about knowledge. I think that at the outset of the movement, they were able to tap into the writings of these Japanese feminist thinkers who were providing these pretty comprehensive critiques of what we would understand to be as masculinist thought, as, as concepts of rationality and how that those were being, you know, idealized as high value forms of knowledge and encouraging other kinds of concepts that we might appreciate as centering the body and coming from the body and not excluding this the body according to the kind of mind-body Cartesian split of subjectivity. Mm -hmm. So one thing that really impressed me from the book is as I was kind of comparing my own experience with like a feminist awakening in a Western context and reading all of the Western, you know, essential texts of, of, feminism as I did. One thing that that Western and white feminists still struggle with is not including an intersectional awareness, not realizing ways that we as white women oppress other groups. And I was really impressed that the Japanese women's liberation movement seems to possess, like right from the very beginning, an anti-imperialist consciousness where it seems that they were more aware of ways that they had privilege and that they might be oppressors as well as the oppressed. So I'd love you to talk about that a little bit. Like what, what are those dynamics in Japan and what are those intersectional aspects of feminism that they were aware of? Well, thank you for asking that question and for kind of also speaking directly to and owning white feminine privilege. I appreciated very much learning about how 
these radical feminists were also inheriting a concept of the duality of their positionality as both the oppressed and oppressors. And I think that that's a really important point of departure because Japanese women had benefited from the, albeit short, imperial history, conquest, domination of the Japanese empire over other Asian nations. And so I think that in the wake of, you know, this, the defeat and the kind of post-colonial structure that Japan was in vis-a-vis these other Asian nations, the Japanese feminists in this movement were taking stock, maybe more akin to German radical feminists, of the violence that had taken place under the kind of umbrella of Japanese national imperialism. And so I think that that history allowed for and encouraged this level of reflection of how one's nation state engages in state violence and how citizens of that nation state can be complicit in those forms of violence, whether it was in the present or in past history. So I think that that's an important lesson that white American women and feminists can really learn from is this example of these Japanese women understanding their identity as being always potentially oppressors and the oppressed. And in that sense, there was that kind of element of intersectionality there in terms of their awareness of ableism as well for some of them. But at the same time, I do think that they were not as rigorous as, you know, we could ideally be on issues of racism and classism. And I think that that's something that, you know, middle class and, you know, class privileged feminists here and everywhere still must continually struggle with, right? Absolutely. You know, I know that this is a little bit of a tangent, but because we aren't going to be able to have a chance to talk about it elsewhere, I'm wondering if you could talk about a couple of the specific examples of women who were oppressed or ways that Japanese women did find themselves in in positions of privilege. In the book, it talks about Korean comfort women and the oppression of Okinawans. And that was completely new to me. I had no idea that Okinawans were considered kind of a different class in Japan. Could you talk about that just a little bit? Absolutely. To take up the subject of comfort women, actually, this is still an ongoing raging debate across the Pacific, where you even currently have Japanese right-wingers who are trying to remove comfort women statutes in the United States. So it's even a transnational issue that other authors like Lisa Yonayama talk about in her book. The comfort women even though it became much more prominent in the 1990s, I appreciated the fact that the activists of the 1970s were talking about their positionality as Japanese women towards the sexual violence that happened to the comfort women. And so even though the women activists of the 1970s were not directly complicit in the system of you know, sexual slavery that the Japanese Imperial Army set up, during their imperial and colonial domination of the rest of Asia, as women who had the privilege of being Japanese, they took were actively taking stock of how their relative privilege as Japanese women had an effect of continuing to potentially oppress Korean women because there are, were many ways in which the comfort women system was re 
formed in the post-war period by women in Korea who were still in the sex industry and doing that out of conditions of economic violence. And there were protests that these activists engaged in against Japanese businessmen who were going, for example, to Korea to engage in these sex tours. And they saw that there was a kind of parallel between the sexual violence against the Korean comfort women and the ongoing forms of sexual exploitation that they saw Japanese businessmen continuing to engage in. And so although the military wasn't necessarily directly involved in the case of these sex tours in the post-war period, Japanese women definitely still wanted to take stock of their complicity and their privilege vis-a-vis Korean women, whether it was the comfort women or sex workers in Korea who were being kind of coerced into such conditions due to structural economic violence. So Japanese women have an ethnic distinction from Okinawan women who would be indigenous to Okinawa. And Japanese women from what's considered mainland have a racialized I think, understanding of Okinawan women and and Okinawan women in that sense comprise a distinct ethnicity within the larger, let's say, nation state formation of Japan. And Okinawan women on a day-to-day basis have to live with the enormous colonial presence of the U.S. military in the post-war period, because 70% of the bases, U.S. military bases, are concentrated in the smaller territory of Okinawa. And as a result of that, right, as a result of that ongoing kind of military colonization of Okinawa, Okinawan women face the threat of sexual and violence from U.S. soldiers who are based there and the kinds of dangers that are a result of having such a huge concentration of, we're talking, you know, not just uh, tens of thousands of U.S. personnel who are based in Okinawa. And as a result, it's a much more intensified kind of colonialism that they are faced to live under as opposed to Japanese women. So in that sense, the ongoing forms of sexual and gendered and racialized violence that Okinawan women are subjected to because of these larger conditions of imperial colonialism and militarism are ways in which the Japanese women as a whole don't have to deal with on that day-to-day lived basis and and the structural conditions in which they are placed. Hmm. Yeah. Well, as I said, that was totally new to me. So I'm really grateful that you wrote about it and then spoke about it just now. So thank you. Okay, back to the Women's Live movement. One of my questions was how it was covered in the media. So did like mainstream Japanese citizens know about the movement that was going on and how was it perceived in the broader culture? So the Umanib movement was definitely covered in the largest newspapers in Japan and the kinds of weekly magazines. And for the most part, it was dominantly covered in this kind of mocking, sensationalized, sexist manner. 
And so it was very frustrating for the activists to oftentimes engage with journalists and the kinds of mocking headlines, right, that the magazines would put out there to also, right, it would be their equivalent of the 70s equivalent of clickbait. And so they would put, for example, headlines like, oh, this activist is trying to is trying to liberate everyone without her shirt on, you know, because there were moments, right, of when the radical activists would go to the mountains and they would have summer camp up there. And as part of their kind of liberation practice, they might have been dancing in the nude outside. And then the journalists would capture some of these photos and then spread them and saying, oh, look at these crazy women, you know, doing these crazy things. So it would kind of be the equivalent of the bra burning kind of stereotype that the mm. media created in in the United States. But in the case of Japan, it was in some sense even potentially more, quote unquote, extreme because, you know, in the U.S., you didn't necessarily have these images of topless women like revolting against patriarchy. But then you have that in Japan. And then, you know, it's completely sensational because while you might have top images of topless women, like in pornography, the fact that these were women were claiming to be, you know, feminists or they weren't necessarily using the word feminist to describe themselves, but you could see how, how that could e so easily be twisted and misrepresented or used as a source of mocking the movement. Yeah, definitely. So was there a backlash against it then? Was there a backlash against the the women's lib movement? I think that the backlash was even more sustained against the feminist movement writ large in the 80s. Tomomi Yamaguchi writes about that at Montana State. So there definitely was a backlash against feminism writ large. And perhaps the backlash against these radical feminists may have been taking place at the time, directly through the apparatus of the mass media, I would say. Well, that brings me to one of the last questions. And I know this is a huge question to just throw at you at the end, but because the book, you know, mostly just talks about the movement in the 1970s, I'm left wondering you know, exactly to your point of, of maybe the backlash in the 1980s, but what happened after that even? And what would you say is the state of gender dynamics in Japan today? Yes, that is a pretty huge question. And for, for me, still a kind of resounding question mark, because it's so hard to, in a sense, generalize, you know, across the generations in terms of where, where we're at with women's liberation in Japan. I could make a few comments in terms of you had this phenomena during the Abe regime and some journalists would come and ask me about the fact that this, you know, to my mind, conservative right-wing pro-military administration was using slogans like womenomics to try to say, oh, we're trying to push for women's equality in the business and workplace. But that was the kind of most a cynical appropriation of using a conservative logic to incorporate women back into the labor force, as opposed to actually creating gender equality in society. In terms of maybe making a comment about gender conditions in Japan today, Again, it's hard to generalize, but I do think that thanks to also social media being a force in which people can access 
various kinds of information, including feminist content, I think that that is still a hopeful arena whereby younger generations of feminists in Japan can tap into uh, these kinds of feminist media, feminist discourses, if, if they're not getting access to that kind of education in classrooms at the college level. I still think that there is a dearth of feminist and gender studies and women's studies content, you know, offered widely in campus settings in Japan. But I do think that there is this, as is everywhere, this ongoing struggle over gender politics and and gender liberation, especially as well with the emergence, with the continued struggle over LGBTQ plus politics. And so I think that the challenge in in the present is also how feminists of previous generations can then engage with ongoing issues of, let's say, trans politics, you know, and how we need to even rethink the ways in which, you know, we use the word and the concept, right, and the category of woman, as opposed to constantly, I think, rethinking what is our praxis for gender liberation for all. So one other thing that I wanted to follow up on is earlier, just a couple questions ago, you mentioned that some of the activists wouldn't necessarily have identified as feminists. So I'm wondering if you could talk about how the word feminism is perceived in Japan, maybe was perceived then or is perceived now or however you want to take that. Thank you. Thanks for that question. So at the time of the UMA movement, the women's lib movement in Japan in the 1970s, Feminism was not a word used to describe the movement or the activists. Feminism and the Japanese pronunciation, which would be feminism, was introduced in Japan in the late 1970s, and it became linked to, adopted by, and taken up by feminists who were primarily in the academy, or definitely feminists who were more associated with a kind of middle-class respectability politics. So definitely in in the case of Japan, feminism, feminism is linked to academic feminism, and it is definitely a source of identity for many women in the current context. But I do want to make that distinction of the fact that it is kind of not necessarily the term used by this particular movement. And there was actually, in some sense, you know, a kind of tension between the women lib activists who were very direct action and considered militant to, in contrast with many women who later came to identify as feminists and were involved in kinds of activism, but were not necessarily thought of as militant direct action, but were more into a kind of reformist, even liberal feminism. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. That's so interesting. And that's, again, one thing that that I've learned so much as we've studied all these different regions of the world is that this word is so loaded and means so many different things and carries so many connotations in in different places. So it's really useful and, and helpful to understand that. Okay, is there anything else that you'd like to share? As a teacher on a college campus, I've been working with more transgender students on campus, more students who are, you know, identify as non-binary. And through my work with them and ongoing, you know, 
LGBTQ politics, I've also been challenged to think more about my own cisgender privilege. And in terms of self-introduction, I know now it's a much more common practice to introduce your preferred pronouns. And a few years ago, I decided to use very unusual pronouns following a fellow Asian a feminist scientist on my campus using the X pronouns, these are them. And I use those just as a signal to, for folks who, you know, cause they're very unusual and it just becomes sometimes a conversation starter, starter, but just in line with the theme of your podcast, for me, they are a way to, in a very day-to-day daily basis, just, you know, F the patriarchy. So in that sense, that's how I kind of fight. It's kind of like my little signal card to basically say, we, I think we can try to disrupt the, the, that kind of patriarchal binary, gendered binary in, whenever, in whatever ways, creative ways we can in our day-to-day lives. So that's where I was, I'm coming from in terms of my current preferred pronouns. Oh, I absolutely love that. Okay, so it's X-E for Z and... Yeah. X-E-R and X-E-M. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Okay. And I mean, I don't th- think that they're that very common, but I'm just kind of being, I suppose, experimental with yeah. refusing because I present as very traditionally feminine mm-hmm. and, you know, I am legally married to a man. Mm-hmm. Uh, so because I get that kind of heteronormative treatment and privilege, I'm just trying to resist that by just kind of rejecting the the gender binary by adopting those. And that's one of the things that I've been recently doing in, in recent years. I love it. Well, I think that's fabulous. And what a wonderful way to wrap up this episode, because I feel like that is kind of what the legacy is of these 1970s you know, feminists in Japan is their experimentalism and their radicalism and their questioning everything. I think that's just a beautiful practical thing to do in in the personal life is to say, well, what am I going to do? I have this one life and and what are some ways that I can disrupt this and lead people to think and to question? So that's awesome. Thank you so much for sharing that. And thank you again so much for being here. Thank you for your book and for all the work that you do. And thank you for this illuminating conversation today. I've enjoyed it so much. Thank you so much, Amy. So glad to share with you on, the, on your show. Before I go, I'd also like to thank Sam Rose Preminger for our production Brianna Jovan for our editing, and Lindsay Olibest for our social media. And thanks to all of you for listening. As always, you can head over to our website at breakingdownpatriarchy.com and our Instagram account at bedownpatriarchy for additional content and resources for today's episode. And if you'd like to help support the podcast, please consider sharing it with others, posting about it on social media, and leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. That's all for this week, but be sure to join us again next time as we continue to become more educated, informed, connected, and active on Breaking Down Patriarchy.